Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. The dog days of summer have arrived, and one thing that means in southern Wisconsin is fresh tomatoes, cucumbers, garlic, sweet corn, and more. But in mid-July, the U.S. Department of Agriculture issued a disaster declaration for 18 southern Wisconsin counties due to unusually dry conditions. And as of last week, much of southwest Wisconsin continued to be in extreme drought. The drought has caused many challenges for local farmers, gardeners, and orchardists. But prolonged sunny warm weather has had its advantages for some crops as well. As part of a new occasional Monday gardening and farming panel on a public affair, today we'll talk about the ups and downs of this growing season with two local experts who can answer your gardening questions. Lisa Johnson is a horticulture educator at UW Extension, Dane County. Welcome to a public affair, Lisa. Thanks. And Jenica Skaug runs Lansing Street Veggies at the Farley Center's Collaborative Farm and is the former farm manager of the Goodman Youth Farm on Madison's East Side. Welcome, Jenica. Thank you. And welcome, listeners. Today's show is all about your questions and observations on this growing season. So if you have a gardening question or you want to share a recent gardening experience, please do give us a call at 608 256 2001 extension 9 you can also reach out to us on twitter at wrt talk or message a public affair on facebook so let us know what you're thinking about midway through this growing season we're going to start with you today jenica um tell us about your market garden out at the farley center and what the challenges and successes of growing this season have been so far well um it's pretty small Sometimes I call it a garden and sometimes I call it a farm. It's about a quarter acre. Um, And I would say this is my first year growing at the Farley Center. Um, Before this year, I was um, growing on some rented land at Appleberry Farm. So one of my challenges has just been getting used to a new space. Um, You never quite know what you're going to get when you start a garden in a a new space. How how weedy is it going to be? What's the soil going to be like? what pests will there will there be? Um, but I think that some of the things uh, that have gone really well, the Farley Center provides really wonderful support for farmers, and I'm really grateful to have that, um, and really grateful to have other farmers to talk to. Um, just really validating to have somebody come out to the field and be like, wow, your cover crop's looking really great. <laughs> like, thanks, I worked really hard on that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, which is part of farming that you don't always get to see at the farmer's markets and that farmers don't always get to talk about. Um, so that's been really nice. And one uh, positive aspect, I, guess, I suppose, of the drought is that um, the weeds have taken a little bit of a break, not a total break, Um, but I think the weed pressure has been a little less intense. Um, I definitely notice after we do have the rains, I'm like, wow, everything grew a lot. (laughs) The weeds grew a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Great. 
Thank you. Uh, we'll hear more about some of those issues uh, that you've been facing growing food out there at the Farley Center this year as we go. But I'll turn to you next, Lisa. You run the Dane County Extension Teaching Garden and talk to a lot of gardeners, right, as part of your work there at UW Extension Dane County. Tell us about what's happening there at the Teaching Garden right now in terms of the, how the growing season's going and what your experience of the growing season in general has been so far this year. Sure. Well, the drought has certainly uh, been a challenge to uh, keep up with uh, watering. I have some amazing volunteers that uh, work in the garden, um, primarily my teaching garden coordinator, uh, Karen Allenstein, and she has been just running hoses back and forth and back and forth uh, to the different garden areas. I'm intensely grateful that we have a drip irrigation system set up in our edibles garden. Uh, and for those of you not familiar with the teaching garden, it is on the east side of Madison off of Agriculture Drive. We'd love to have you come visit, but the parking lot is under construction right now, so I would come after 4.30 um, if you want to. Uh, you can still get to all the areas uh, of the garden, but parking's a little challenging during the uh, work day. Uh, weekends usually are, are okay uh, as well. We have 12 different garden areas. I mentioned the edibles garden, but we've also got a pollinator garden, rock garden, uh, shade garden, sidewalk garden, not too imaginative name, but it's along the sidewalk, um, a demonstration prairie, uh, let's see, oh, and the naturalistic uh, garden. So um, we, yeah, water has been the, the main issue. Nice thing, we haven't had too many Japanese beetles this year uh, because it was very dry last fall when they were laying eggs. So, yay, uh, we do have uh, <laughs> some benefits. Yeah. Um, what challenges are you hearing about from local gardeners that you talk to as part of your extension work? Oh, boy, it, it runs the gamut. I get, you know, tree questions. I get um, vegetable gardening, lawn questions. A lot of uh, people kind of tearing their hair out about, you know, their lawn <laughs> not surviving the drought terribly well. I expect that grass seed will be a popular item um, this fall if uh, if seeding is in a good place but uh squash bug getting getting you know it's that time of year squash bugs um and um, many other types of garden pests yeah uh so you mentioned japanese beetles not so much because of it was dry when yeah. when they were laying eggs squash bugs are coming on other pests that you're hearing about or that uh seem to be a particular problem this year um, the usual ones that get the brassica crops, mm -hmm. so, you know, the cabbage looper and the imported cabbage worm that eat the big holes in the, uh, you know, broccoli and cauliflower and um, cabbage and, you know, all of those leaves. I don't know whether you're seeing those out there at, at your plot, uh, Jenica, but uh, we certainly have our, and aphids, all the sucking insects, uh, so mites, aphids, scales, those usually get washed off when we have regular rain, but oh my gosh, that they are just really uh, skyrocketing this year. So we've got some mite issues and uh, aphids. What kinds of plants would those aphids be impacting in particular or crops? Everything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, uh, there are a number of different species um, and 
different preferences. There are some that get on our native plants that tend to freak people out because they're bright orange and, you know, there's a lot of them, but they're usually pretty harmless on our native plants. But on our vegetables and on our, you know, other types of garden plants, they're problematic when you're trying to harvest uh, stuff. That's a big issue. Yeah. Angelica, you um, manage your market garden organically, correct? That's right. Yeah. The yeah. Farley Center is um, certified organic, so they manage that certification process um, with together with all the farmers that are out there. So um, Lisa was just talking about pests. Yeah. What <laughs> pests have you encountered and how do you approach them using organic methods? Um, there's been a pretty heavy load of flea beetles this year, mm. which um, love brassicas, like mm-hmm. Lisa was saying. Um, they were also on my Swiss chard and beets and sweet potatoes this year, um, as well as the cabbage worms and things like that. So primarily what I try to do is u- utilize row cover. And if you're not familiar, it's, um, uh, it's a spun fabric think it's actually made from plastic which is unfortunate but it lets through sunlight and water Um, and in the early spring when um, crops are planted you put that over um, the transplants or sometimes even the direct seeded items and uh, some pests like flea beetles um, cannot find their way or you hope they cannot find their way uh, into the row cover. You can bury the edges with soil. You can hold them down with sandbags. There are different methods for holding it down, but you want to make sure you get a fairly good seal around the edges. Um, And that usually does the trick in terms of managing some of those pests. It can also work for things like potato beetles, keeping them off of those early crops. Obviously not brassicas, but um, I row cover my eggplant for that reason because um, potato beetles also love eggplant. Um, and then for the larger pests, um, you, I, I, you can do hand picking. So I, I try to do that when I get cabbage worms cause, um, they are the same color as the plant. So they're a little hard to find, but they do tend to have certain habits. So if you spend a, a fair amount of time with your plants, you'll know that, well, the cabbage worms tend to be on the inner leaves and you can see where they've been because you can follow their poop trail, which sounds gross, but... <laughs> is the word frass? Is that right? Yes. Oh, okay. I love sure, that yeah. word, frass. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And then you can find them and squish them. And um, they one caterpillar can eat a lot of leaf, so that can be a fairly effective method. Um, so we try to do all of those things um, and uh, also just getting the plants ahead of the pests. So trying to have healthy soil um, and healthy plants to start with also really helps. And if all of those things don't work, then there are some organically approved sprays that we can use. And the Farley Center also assists with um, making sure that all those protocols are fo- followed. Absolutely. Well, we have our first caller of the day on the line here. David is on the line with a question about seed preservation. David, welcome to A Public Affair. Oh, thanks. I uh, was, you know, obviously uh, Wisconsin's a little different than uh, Texas. I was wondering, you know, for the people down there, they're going on a solid month of uh, extreme heat, and I'm just wondering about... You know, things like acorns on the ground, uh, different kinds of grasses, different kinds of uh, other seeds, are they being destroyed, basically, by that extreme heat? 
And would it be a good idea for people to go out there and gather, um, you know, a good sack of uh, different kinds of seeds to at least ensure that there will be some for the next uh, growing season? Such an interesting question, David. We maybe need some ecologists around here as well to help with that. So you're talking about wild seeds in particular, or tree seeds, not yeah, not garden yeah. seeds that you know yeah, re- rely on natural uh, distribution for for reproduction um, and what the extreme heat impact has on them. It's a really interesting question. Let's see, Lisa, you have some thoughts. Yeah, I I would be speculating here to uh, to some degree, but uh, a lot of the natives are adapted to more or less extreme uh, conditions. The problem is, of course, going forward, we're going to continue to have more and more extreme uh, conditions. And at some point, I do expect that there will be some um, issues like that. Like here in Wisconsin, um, in Dane County, it's pretty much the lower or the southernmost range of the white bark birch. And it's too hot farther south. Well, as temperatures continue to increase, we probably will not be able to grow that crop uh, here, that particular tree. I I don't think we need to worry about collect. Well, people do collect seed, and I think that's awesome, you know, for like prairie restoration and and so on. Um, I'm involved in the Heritage Oaks uh, program where we are actually collecting acorns from uh, some of our uh, wonderful heritage oak trees that have been here since before Wisconsin was a state, and so we can preserve those uh, genetics. Um, I I don't know that we need to you know worry about that kind of thing wholesale, uh, you know, uh, as the caller was uh, wondering, but um, maybe in the future. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that Heritage Oak program. That's really interesting. Um, I wasn't aware of it. Yeah. So big bur- you're talking about collecting acorns from these big giant bur oaks you might see around Madison or right. white oaks. Um, there are all, you know, we have red oaks too and, mm-hmm. and black oaks uh, as well. If you go to the Dane County Extension um, Tree Board website, uh, this was first started in 1976. And what they did was they looked at all of the trees that had a particular diameter. Um, I think for burr and white oaks, I think it's a 10-foot diameter. Um, and I, oh, not 10-foot diameter, 10-foot um, circumference. And I think for the others, it might be the red-black oak, because it might be like 14. Um and so they they located all of those. Then they did it again in 2000, uh, 2001 or something, and we're doing it again now. And unfortunately, of course, many of those trees are gone or the um, reference points we can't find anymore. Um, but we are working on doing that with um, the amazing Matt Noon from uh, CARPSI, um, and he is a... Uh, GIS uh, specialist. So uh, what we're doing is we're collecting the acorns, some of which will go to the DNR for their um, tree nursery program, but we're also germinating a bunch on our own that will eventually, we have the idea of distributing those to the public at various events when they get old enough uh, to do that. 
but you can you can see the the old map. We're also encouraging the public to get involved. We do have a uh, like a crowdsourced uh, map that's out there. Um, I think it might. I'm trying to remember what uh, what site that's at. You can contact me if you're if you're interested. Um, but we're encouraging people to measure their uh, their trees and see if they fit the parameters. And if they do, then um, let us know because we'd love to add new ones uh, to the map and uh, see where our legacy heritage uh, trees are and how they're doing. And like you said, one of the advantages to having the the seeds from those trees is they've been around a long time, yeah. so they've survived a lot of variation in climate and all kinds of exactly. events, right? Even yeah. the spongy moth, which we've been right. having issues with this year. So, yeah, so we're trying to preserve those uh, genetics. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and today I'm talking with Dane County Extension Horticulture Educator Lisa Johnson and Farley Center Market Gardener Jenica Skaug. Today's show is all about your questions and observations on this growing season. If you have a gardening question or you want to share a recent gardening experience, give us a call at 608 256 2001 extension 9 that's 608 256 2001 extension 9 to talk about gardening and farming this growing season so uh there's so much to talk about uh we've talked a little bit about the drought conditions and pests this year um what crops have you uh or vegetables or flowers for that matter have you noticed doing really well in the drought conditions that don't get regular water obviously home gardeners or somebody like you jenica you have access to water you can do a little bit of watering if you need to um but uh for folks who are not able to water uh, plants that they want to grow for whatever reason um what's doing well despite the drought i'd say sweet potatoes um, they like it hot and dry usually. I mean, you have to get them established, um, but once once that happens, they they do okay in those kinds of conditions. Maybe some herbs too. I, I just harvested my garlic, and oh. um, I wasn't sure what I was going to get because I that's one crop crop that I don't irrigate. It is mulched quite heavily, um, so that helps with water retention. Um, but I, w- I was wondering if I was going to get um, smaller sizes, um, and they seemed pretty pretty on par with what I've gotten in previous years, so I would say that it did okay. You're growing on a much larger scale than I am, Jenica, but I had the same <laughs> observation, is that I expected the garlic to be small, and it, it did great. Um, and. Uh, the same garlic from your your plants, so um, that must that must be a particularly drought resistant variety that you have. Yeah, um, I also wanted to. Can I jump in on the last question? Yeah, by all means. Um, as a former garden educator, I have to say that like collecting tree seeds is something that my spouse has been doing with our older daughter, who's five now. Um, for the last couple of years, and uh, I don't know about other kids, but um, my daughter really loves to collect nuts and seeds, and uh, they have been just really enjoying that. Uh, and they've grown all sorts of different kinds of trees in our backyard, just in pots. And then um, we try to give them away to people, Lisa, like you were talking about. And I just think it's a wonderful um, educational opportunity and a way to have fun in the outdoors in the city. That's very um, cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a great idea. And like you said, gets you more connected to your neighborhood and what's growing around you, right? When you start paying attention to looking for those seeds. 
Um, and then in the garden, um, the last couple years, I um, have bought some of my seeds from a friend's kind of startup seed business, which is based in Amory, Wisconsin. Um, and they grow open pollinated varieties. It's called Cultivating the Commons. Um, and a lot of their varieties they have um, selected for characteristics that are more adapted to our specific growing area and conditions. So um, often if you buy seeds from a larger company, that company might be based in a different state, which is not to say that the seeds won't grow well. I buy from some of those companies as well if I want certain varieties. Um, but I just, when I buy things from them, I'm really all excited to see um, how they will do, you know, and I hope for the future that as we see the climate and the weather change, that they'll be able to continue growing and selling seeds that are resilient in our changing climate. We have another caller. Jerry is on the line with a question about pests. Um, Jerry, welcome to A Public Affair. Thank you very much. A uh, question concerns redbuds versus canadensis. I have a brand new uh, little dog seedling. Uh, it's probably only 10 inches tall. And I noticed that something came out and chomped little circular holes in the edges of the leaves. So in doing some research, I don't think it's black vine weevil, who like rhododendrons and a lot of other things, but I think it might be uh, solitary bees uh, that, uh, that chomp these pieces of leaf out and then use them to, uh, to build their nests. So uh, anyway, I've got it uh, fenced off in chicken wire, but I don't really want to use any sprays. It was suggested that there's a company that makes a nematode uh, treatment uh, and that goes after the grubs in the soil. But uh, I'm very curious. What do you what do you know about redbuds and what likes to munch them? Sure. Um, well, I this is I got to say the first time that I've heard of redbud being um, harvested by leafcutter bees. But that sounds like exactly what you've got with the little round holes. And I've got to say I've seen a lot of maple uh, seedlings with that too, with the holes cut out around the the edges. Uh, what the bee does is it takes those little round circles of leaf back to the nest and uses that to uh, to line her her nest. Um, they are great pollinators, so uh, we. I'm happy to sacrifice a little bit of <laughs> leaf uh, leaf area to those um, to those insects. Um, what you might want to try if you're uh, you know if your plant is so small that you're worried about losing leaf. Um, area, you might want to try that floating row cover that Jenica was talking about because um, it's it's not going to be permeable to um, to those insects. They're not huge, so they can get through a lot of uh, screening. Of course, it would be hard for them to get the leaf that they harvested back out again, but uh, I think um, you might want to try the floating row cover. One thing I do worry about a little bit with floating row cover in heat and drought is that it does act like a little greenhouse and you can accidentally cook things uh, so I'd put your plant if it's um, is it in the ground or is it in a pot I don't think we have Jerry on oh, the you line don't anymore have it. Yeah. okay if it's in a pot you can move it into um, slight oh, oh okay. okay yeah yeah Jerry uh, we yeah, had a question okay. from Lisa here for you uh, okay. so Jerry is your plant in a pot or in the ground no, it's still in a pot. 
Okay. Yeah, if you decide to use that floating row cover, um, first of all, I'd make sure you have something to prop it up with. Um, you could maybe use some um, hardware cloth or something like that to make a rigid uh, cylinder and then drape the uh, row cover over that. I'd give the plant plenty of breathing room on all sides and on the top um, and maybe put it in partial shade if it's going to be really hot out. Um, I don't know, Jenica, you probably have more experience with floating row cover and um, vegetables, at least, than I do. Yeah, I just accidentally cooked some cabbages the other day. <laughs> <laughs> Not in the kitchen. Yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> How yeah, long but, did that take? I mean, just a really hot day and boom. Yeah, there. It's a couple really hot days. Yeah. And in the spring, I put it on without any supports. Um, so um, that's just like me not having the right materials. But um, yeah, I, I've seen other farmers using hoops. So I think what Lisa said, a little hardware cloth or even a small like tomato cage or something yeah, around it too. would would be great for a pot. But like you said, Lisa, it sounds like um, these bees are not probably going to be able to do much damage or, or have much no. of an impact on the health of a mature or, or well taken yeah, care of. Yeah, not at all. Red it's tree. more of a, a curiosity and a go pollinators kind of oh. <laughs> thing. Yeah. So, All right. Thanks for your question, Jerry. Thanks for calling in. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Dane County Extension Horticulture Educator Lisa Johnson and Farley Center Market Gardener Jenica Kaskaug. Today's show is all about your questions and observations about this growing season. So if you have a gardening question or want to share a recent gardening experience, Please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. And we have another caller. Richard is on the line. Uh, go ahead, Richard. You're on a public affair. Thank you. I know some people who use preen, pre-emergent herbicide, and they sell at the markets. I was wondering what your thoughts are about that. Um, as long as they're not selling the uh, plants as being organic, um, I, I don't know. That's not really my area, um, but I, you know, I, I know that certainly many uh, gardeners do use products like, like that. I don't personally advocate it in the um, crops that you're going to eat, uh, but I do know that there is one that, at least I think there is, there's one that's labeled for the vegetable garden, but you wouldn't be able to use seeds. You know, because it's a pre-emergent, and it won't let your won't let your seeds uh, germinate. That's the whole point of you know. It, the product though doesn't know the difference between a garden vegetable seed and a weed seed, so. So tell uh, for folks who might not know exactly what this product is. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Okay, I'm not an herbicide expert sure. either, but um, pre-emergents are. Um, chemicals that are sometimes based on plant hormones, sometimes not, that you um, apply usually early in the season uh, in order to discourage the germination of weed seeds. A lot of people use um, products like that in their lawn so that crabgrass doesn't, uh, doesn't germinate. Um, but in the vegetable garden, it would mean then that you wouldn't be able to uh, 
you'd have to use transplants. You know, you wouldn't be able to plant seeds. And the product lasts for, you know, depending on the variety or the, I mean, the brand, um, a certain amount of time. Um, and eventually it it will stop. And of course, um, if you disturb the soil, you kind of break the layer that the product is in. And so maybe when you plant your transplants, you might find that you end up with weeds coming up uh, around the transplant because you've kind of broken that barrier. Jenica? Um, so if you're talking about controlling weeds early on in the season, um, I, I I haven't done this a lot myself, but I've read a lot about and know other organic farmers use flame weeding. Um, so you there's different setups, but essentially you can have a propane tank with an attachment. It looks like a giant torch, pretty fun to use. Probably made it take care in the drought conditions, making sure you have a good um, buffer zone. Um, but essentially you have your garden area and uh, either before or um, Soon, you can even do it if you're direct seeding uh, is a certain amount of time after you plant your things like carrots or beets before those seeds start to germinate, you singe the top of the soil. So any um, weed seeds that have germinated, even if you can't fully see them yet, will um, die. And it can be a really effective way to get some of those early weeds. Not to say that you'll never have weeds the rest of the season, but it can be very helpful. Um, also, in the kind of the, the smaller scale market gardening world, um, there's a number of tools that are really helpful, and I find them helpful even in like at our home or in a smaller garden setting. Um, they're often called scuffle hose, where instead of pulling each individual weed out of the ground, um, it it's basically like a, a soil knife that's attached to a handle, and there are different varieties of these tools you can buy. You can get them from Johnny's. Sometimes I think Jung's might sell them. Um, but it's essentially a, a, a knife where somebody described it to me once like, oh, it's like shaving the earth. So you're mm -hmm. just going right below the surface of the soil and you're cutting all those weeds that have maybe really tiny, um, but then they never have a chance to become large. And because they're small, the roots are coming out. You know, if you're weeding out giant crab grasses and weeds that have already gotten out of control, it's not an effective method. But if you're talking about something that's early on, I find it very effective um, way to control those weeds. And these are ways that you can control those weeds without having the impacts of the, the herbicide in the environment, right? Washing away, right. et cetera, or into yeah. the soil. Yeah. 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 And the mulch you were talking about earlier, too, is a good weed suppressant. I always try to mulch as many things as possible, and this year I mulched all the things. <laughs> yeah, I just had a week of mulching. <laughs> and I'm sure that's really helped with the dry conditions, right? Yeah, right. I do think it helps a lot. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of my plants, um, especially I grow some, some plants in a hoop house, and they were really struggling because it's especially dry in there, and even though I was watering them, um, it was just too hot, but I mulched them, and then they really took off, and it really helps help, um, in addition to providing that water retention it also kind of provide has some cooling effect on the roots of the plants so if they're getting um, singed kind of by that heat of the sun that can really help i'm always amazed when on like a dry hot afternoon and it hasn't rained in a few days and i put my hands down underneath the mulch and, and how cool and, and damp it feels down under there yep and it also provides a, um, a better environment for different insects um, and and beneficial pests uh, not, sorry, beneficial, beneficial insects, beneficial yeah. insects yeah. not beneficial pests. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. 
Thanks, Jenica. I think we have another call about uh, insects and pests. Uh, caller looking for some help with one. Uh, Susan, you're on a public affair. Well, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I have um, snapdragons and echinaceas. This happened to me, my echinaceas last year, and they've moved to the snapdragons. It's like some little pest, but all the evidence is um, these little white eggs, like lots and lots of them on the soil at the base of the plant. Um, I notice them after the plant starts to wilt. And then I look down at the base and they're, they're down there, lots of these little, little white eggs. Uh, that one is one I am not familiar with. Um, but I can tell you where to go to find that out. Uh, if you want to take a good couple of clear pictures with your phone, um, you can either send them to me at the um, Dane County Extension Office or uh, skip me entirely because uh, I'm just going to send them to PJ Leash, our state entomologist uh, at the, you can um, do an internet search for insect diagnostic lab and you can send him the photos and he will know um, what it is. Okay. Thanks for those resources, Lisa. Uh, sorry we couldn't answer your question more specifically unless you have any ideas, Jenica. I don't. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> you haven't actually, Susan, are you still there? Yeah. Have you, you haven't actually seen the insect itself, just the, the eggs? No, I yeah. can't. I can never see them and they, they think they bore a hole in the plant. Oh, okay. Um, Maybe down so in the, the stem or the, the roots the, or something? Yeah, down in the stem. Mm -hmm. in the boat lower, lower down in the stem, I see a hole. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, well, sounds like some kind of borer, but I don't know specifically which one that would be or why uh, you're getting them. Um, sometimes insects will overwinter in plant debris, so... Um, you might want to make sure that you uh, clean that up real well in the fall, um, but I'd be speculating, so I'll leave uh, PJ to get the rest of that question. All right. Thanks for that resource again, and thanks for the call, Susan. Uh, Jenica, you mentioned garlic a little while ago. Um, crops that you can store for a while are starting to come in now, right? Um, let's talk a little bit about storage crops and, and how you go about storing them, because this is something that people can do, even if they don't have their own garden, they can buy in bulk at, at a farmer's market or something and say, I want to keep these for a while. Um, any thoughts on storage crops? Uh, sure, yeah, that's actually something I have particular interest in is um, winter produce, essentially. Um, so Lisa mentioned sweet potatoes. I'm doing my first sweet potato crop in a few years um, this year, and, and they are growing really well. Um, so uh, lucky that the Farley Center has a, a, a large walk-in root cellar that um, I'm hoping to utilize this year um, and sell uh, storage crops um, about once a month as long as I can yeah. <laughs> during the winter. Um, so there are those root crops that you can, even if you don't have a root cellar, um, you can create similar conditions to a root cellar, which is generally dark and cool and um, with, a, you know, some ventilation. So in the past, we've utilized just our basement and, and there are some small windows down there, but a dark corner of the basement is a pretty good option. And 
uh, a lot of houses. Um, you can get more complicated than that, but a lot of the crops will store down there, not as long as they would store in the root cellar, but a couple of months. We've even kept um, late winter cabbages just in our basement for up to a month, and we're eating them on Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And the outer leaves are definitely dried and yellowed, but then inside um, it makes a delicious coleslaw or soup or something like that. Um, I also would recommend um, trying some basic fermenting or freezing. Canning, I think, needs more equipment, but you can make sauerkraut. You um, And if you've never had fresh sauerkraut, I definitely recommend it. <laughs> Trying it, even if you're a skeptic, um, because it really adds a lot of flavor and additional nutrition. Um, and it can be stored in your fridge for, um, you know, three, four, five, six months. So you can um, get a lot of those fresh, still tasting vegetables in the winter from the garden or the farmer's market. Yeah, great. And that garlic, how do you uh, store that garlic or how do you make sure that that garlic stays um, good without, you know, rotting <laughs> or getting mildew or anything? Um, well, first there's a curing phase, which um, is two to three weeks or sometimes a little more depending on your conditions. But basically you want to hang it again in a place that's going to be dry and not as cool as the basement. Um, you know, in the middle of the summer, it's hard to get somewhere that's temperature controlled. Mine currently is hanging in the, um, a, you know, an area of the pack shed, just hanging from a rafter in a, a place where there's, you know, there's large sort of garage style doors. So you get the airflow moving through there. Some people use fans if their space is more enclosed. Um, and yeah, just let it dry out with the tops on, ideally, for. Um, yeah, two to three weeks. I have some friends that cure theirs in a wheelbarrow. They don't hang it at all. They just rotate it every day and make sure they wheel the wheelbarrow into a shed. <laughs> you don't really want to leave it in the sun to dry out. Um, you can get sunburnt and then um, the cloves will get damaged. Um, yeah. That's great. Thank you. We have another caller on the line who uh, wants to follow up about Susan's bugs from the last call. Don, welcome to A Public Affair. Hey, thank you. Um, I was going to ask my question, and then I heard Susan's sure. uh, comment. And I've, I've been growing tomatoes and gardening for 30 years, and I've never had a stock borer on my tomatoes until this year. And I know we've got a native uh, one and a non-native one, and that's exactly what they do. The, the, they bore a hole in the stem, and then the caterpillar grows in there, and then it, it, it wilts your plants, and your plants can die. Um, I didn't know that they could infect um, ornamental plants because this is on my tomatoes. So I've been out there spraying neem, and I'm just so distressed that two or three of my tomato plants have almost died. Uh, and so it's also a problem because they can overwinter in giant ragweed, which I know some of my neighbors had in their backyard, which is not good. So any additional information that you guys have um on that stock borer and it's typically found with corn and could be a problem with corn um, but uh, very few of us around here grow corn so any comments is, is much appreciated and thank you for all the good information you guys thank you for calling in don um i've heard of corn borer yeah. is that what she's yeah, talking about yeah that's probably western corn borer um i again i'm i'm just um 
speculating here, but I do know that once the borer is inside the plant, spraying is not going to help because it's uh, not going to be able to get to um, the insect. Um, so one of the things that we do, for example, with squash vine borer is what Jenica was talking about with the, um, the brassicas, um, where you spend some time flipping leaves and looking for, um, well, that's flipping leaves is more going to get you uh, squash bug eggs. But with the vine borer, they lay their little coppery eggs, uh, coppery orange eggs, singly on the stems and... You know, if you know what time of year to uh, scout for those, you can find them and take care of them um, before they actually get in. I'm not familiar with the one that um, uh, gets tomatoes, um, and that may be the western corn borer. Um, sometimes, uh, I mean, they don't just infect corn, but <laughs> that's where they're most uh, problematic. And sometimes you get insects after there's been a harvest, uh, of whatever particular um, crop they are infesting coming into the ornamental garden or the vegetable garden if you live near um, a farm field. Um, so like when they harvest um, the soybeans, you know, you might end up with uh, soybean aphid uh, getting over uh, to where you are. Any thoughts on the, the boars and the tomatoes, Jenica? Yeah, I've never had those, um, but I, I agree with Lisa is that it, it doesn't help right now. But if possible, you know, in future years, you could keep an eye out for those, um, especially if you're thinking that they're going to overwinter. Okay. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Dane County Extension Horticulture Educator Lisa Johnson and Farley Center Market Gardener Jenica Skaug. We're still uh, open for your questions and observations about this growing season. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. In our last 13 minutes or so here, there's so much to talk about, but I want to go back to that subject of mulch. And we were talking about mulch and um, tillage. And I know that, Jenica, you've been experimenting with different kinds of no-till vegetable production techniques. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to do that. Get rid of the rototiller. Uh, your story there with, with the journey towards no-till gardening. Right. Yeah. So my spouse and I used to do the, the market garden together. And we had a, a Troy-built tiller from the 1980s that we had bought on Craigslist. Um, and then after our first daughter was born, um, the tiller started misbehaving and it eventually broke that first summer after she was born and we were new parents and we didn't have time to fix a tiller um so that's how we started our no-till uh -huh. <laughs> uh, farm operation <laughs> um we had actually that same year uh got a, a broad fork which is if you're unfamiliar it's a large tool it it looks really imposing um but essentially it's a, it looks like a gigantic fork with two handles thus the name um, and, and you step on it and you use it to kind of lift up the soil before you plant. So um, instead of a tiller, what we'll do is we'll um, turn over the soil and mix the layers. And the broad fork, if, you, if it's used properly, um, will not mix the layers. So um, if you're an earthworm, it's the difference between uh, going on like a gentle roller coaster ride uh -huh. versus being put in a blender. Um, right. And so... 
we started using that the first year um, and it was kind of a slow transition. We were renting land at a space where they had like a large tractor that they were willing to, you know, let us borrow occasionally if we needed some tillage. Um, and definitely the, the first year of using no-till techniques uh, was difficult. Um, and the second and third and fourth years were much, much more rewarding as um, the soil improved essentially and got easier to work. Um, so one thing that I learned when I was, we were starting with our no-till um, techniques, I, I always had heard the word no-till, it gets thrown around a lot kind of in the market gardening and, and regular gardening community, um, is that I thought it was like you had to learn the ways of no-till. Um, and what I learned is that there are many ways of doing no-till. There are different techniques depending on the size of your garden or farm. Um, you know, there are people that do no-till agriculture um, with hundreds of acres, and they use very different techniques than somebody with a home garden or a quarter acre size market garden like I have, right? Um, so my broad fork that I use for my quarter acre is not going to work for my cousin who manages 200 acres of, of dairy farm. He also uses no-till. Um, so yeah, I, I did read a couple of books that were really useful to me um, and they are more about the market garden scale, but I, I think if, it, if I was just having a home garden, I would still find them um, really useful. One was called the No-Till Organic Farming Revolution, which I thought was kind of a hokey name. <laughs> uh, it's by Andrew Mefford, um, but it, it turned out to be a really wonderful book because he um, traveled to different no-till farms of different sizes um, around the United States, and he, he basically did a write-up on each one. So you're really able to see uh, the variety of techniques that were used. And then I was able to pick out a few, you know, that I wanted to try. Um, and then another great resource um, is the No-Till Market Garden podcast, which is uh, done by Jesse Frost. Um, he also has like a website you can go to. It's notillgrowers.com. Um, again, with a lot of great resources for growing at different scales. Great. Thank you. Do you want to add anything about no-till gardening or your experiences, um, Lisa? I haven't uh, experimented with that a whole lot, So, uh, and I think Jenica covered it awesomely. So, okay. <laughs> What are some of the reasons why, if it's not a happy accident, people decide to give up um, rototillers or, or tilling the soil? I think there are a lot of different reasons. Um, one of them is uh, rototilling uh, and not no denigration on people who use rototillers. I did for a long time, and there are a lot of benefits to doing them. People grow great produce with the use of tillage. Um, but one thing that we do know is that tilling does release carbon into the atmosphere. So if you're talking about um, trying to reduce the effects of climate change, um, that can be one reason. Um, another reason is just for general soil health. Um, without disturbing those uh, insects uh, and microbes that live in the soil or, or disturbing them as little as possible. You know, one of the things that Jesse Frost says in his book is that, you know, people kind of get this all or nothing attitude, like I'm doing no-till or I'm not, I mean, it can be like a, a scale, a disturb the soil as little as possible. You're still trying to grow a crop and you're not going to do it all perfectly the first year or the second year, maybe yeah. ever. Um, but uh, yeah, so just ha 
maintaining that biodiversity in the soil, that long term can really benefit the plants you're trying to grow. Um, I think, again, the first year, it's going to feel like a real struggle, <laughs> um, but over the course of a few years can really help. Um, another, so I'd love to talk about one of the no-till techniques um, that, and you can use this technique while still doing tillage, but it's easier with no-till, is called living rows um, or, or living walkways. So in between my garden beds, um, and this is true for, at home gardens as well, you have to have somewhere to walk. Mm -hmm. um, whether you have raised beds or, um, you know, just a garden in the ground, um, you can have nothing there and then you have to weed it you can put down a mulch, but then sometimes you still have to weed it. Um, so what I use is I use white clover. Um, it's a cover crop? Yeah. So as in, normally you would use that as a cover crop. Sometimes people plant it in their lawns. Um, and in, you can seed it almost any time of the year. I often do a frost seeding in the middle of March. It's a great reason to get out in the garden in the middle of March because not much else is happening <laughs> that time of year. Um, and you have to know where your walkways are going to be. I seed the white clover. It germinates as the ground goes through the last couple of frost heaves. Um, and then you, you don't want to walk on it right away while it's still little. But then by this time of year, my walkways are this really wonderful, lush, clover. If you have a heavy weed pressure, um, I do sometimes have to pull out grasses and things that, mm -hmm. and lamb's quarters that still germinate in there. Um, but once you do that, the clover really takes over. Um, it helps with erosion. So as we're getting these rains that are coming sometimes suddenly and uh, a lot at once. Like um, the other I night. Yeah, yeah, like the other yeah. night. Um, the, the clover has really paid off, I think, um, in, in holding the soil in place um, so you don't get the washout, um, which is, has happened to me in the past. And then, um, yeah. So and I definitely recommend trying a similar thing. It doesn't have to be clover. People use different things. You do have to mow it or cut it, it's, you know, down at some point so it doesn't take over your whole garden. <laughs> uh, but you see, Lisa, you were talking about people calling in about their lawns. And because we had uh, a lot of white clover seed around, I also seeded it in our lawn mm -hmm. at our house. Um, and it's been really resilient in the drought this year. I've noticed it's still being green. And, of course, it flowers also. And that's yeah, really and the wonderful pollinators for, for the pollinators <laughs> and drawing those to the garden as well. So it has a lot of benefits. Puts nitrogen into the soil as yep. well. Yes, it puts, well. puts a nitrogen yeah. fixer, yeah. yeah. Well, this relates to an off-air question we have here. Taylor uh, wrote in, uh, who volunteers at Period Garden Park in Madison, and has a, a big question that many of us think about, and what you were just talking about relates to, how do we plan gardens to withstand climate change? We've been kind of hitting this question from various angles all throughout the hour, but... Um, is there any kind of one little nugget you'd like to share? We're going to have to wrap up here soon about uh, Taylor's question. Um, Lisa. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be uh, a challenge for sure. I think a lot of the techniques that we've uh, already talked about, the mulching, um, drip irrigation, if you're doing, you know, vegetables um, might be something you want to try. Um, we are going to have to adjust our, our plant material uh, maybe at some point. Um, it, you know, it's going to depend on the, the various uh, crops and how heat and drought tolerant they are. Um, 
but yeah, it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be an interesting uh, interesting challenge. In other words, think carefully about what crops we're growing and which ones are going to to do best right. in these kind of more extreme volatile climatic conditions. Yeah, Jenica. Yeah. I mean, I think in the micro environment of your own garden, um, just taking notes on on what crops do Great well idea. and and what crops don't do well, um, and then kind of continuing to cultivate the ones that are performing well, having diversity if possible. I know some gardens are quite small, but if possible, having diversity in varieties. Um, and then, um, you know, we had the caller who was talking about saving seeds, and, he, and I think he was talking more about trees, but some garden seeds are fairly s- straightforward to save at home, including tomatoes, which a lot of people grow. You have to make sure that you have um a, a non-hybrid variety, so an heirloom. Sometimes they're often called heirloom varieties, um, and that that process is pretty straightforward. Going, um, in in terms of you know saving those seeds for yourself for future years, or to share with friends of things that have done well in the current environment. Mm-hmm. I know each of you have resources you'd like to share with us as well before we wrap up here. So I want to take a couple of minutes that we have left to give you an opportunity to do that. Um, Lisa, you have the horticulture helpline there, uh, extension. Uh, anything else you want to uh, share with us about resources for people to continue this conversation? And- yeah, uh, the um, Wisconsin horticulture site where uh, people like me have um, the the publications. Um, that's that's a good spot. The Plant Disease Diagnostics Clinic, the PDDC, has a rockin' set of um, fact sheets on many diseases. And then I already mentioned the Insect Diagnostic Lab. Great, thank you, Angelica. Um, I. I I think I'd like to speak to, I, I so I used to, as you said, work for um, Community Groundworks, which is now called Rooted, um, and uh, also have kids of my own. They have, Rooted has a number of great garden education programs, but I think, you know, getting your, if you have kids, getting them out into the garden um, and, and just outside in general and, um, you know, uh, giving them some experiences and educating, like, the next generation about um, taking care of plants and seeds, and hopefully they'll have some good ideas for climate resiliency. <laughs> Absolutely. And and I love what you said there about paying attention and paying close attention. That's one of the joys of gardening, right? It fine-tunes our attention to the world around us, and you two both certainly showed that in spades today in terms of how uh, attuned you are to what's happening in your gardens and, and through the whole landscape. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I've been talking today with Jenica Skaug of Lansing Street Veggies. Thanks so much for coming in, Jenica. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I've been talking as well with Lisa Johnson, horticulture educator at UW Extension, Dane County. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a real privilege having both of you here in the studio today. I'd also like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Shelley Pittman. Thanks to our callers. And thank you for joining us today on a public affair here at WRT 89.9 FM, Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Book Beat. Disregard the mainstream media distorted. We come and listen to support it. Six foot six, I'm a sea level. I grab the mic.